Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. As promised in our prior podcast, today is part two of our two-part series in which we discuss actually a once-in-a-hundred-years event in this part. And what we're talking about is an upcoming major change in the role of the dollar as a reserve currency. Our part two today lays out what you can expect and why you should care about the rapid formation of specific plans to replace the dollar as a reserve currency for over half of the world while establishing a so-called BRIC, B-R-I-C, country challenge to our century of leading the world in trade, investments, capital flows, and wealth creation. This is a really big deal, and you likely will hear little of it from the TV news and the mainstream press, at least not yet. You be the judge. First of all, U.S. government spending is today's overwhelming stimulant for higher inflation and debt creation, and this plays directly into the replacement of the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. I know you've heard this before, but I'm giving some important new trends you've likely not heard before. So please bear with me for a few minutes before I bridge the global implications of our present debt and inflation situation. As you likely know, the federal government has issued approximately $32 trillion of debt. That's our national debt. The interest on the federal debt on this debt is moving up from about $400 billion a year to a trillion dollars and more a year, which is creating an even higher budget deficit that has to be financed every single year going forward. In brief, the U.S. Treasury is locking in, unfortunately for all of us, a $1 to $2 trillion spending deficit every year as far as we can see, and that forces them to face the following. Importantly, rolling over and refinancing about $8 trillion of government bonds and government notes over the next few years, but additionally, borrowing an additional $1 to $2 trillion every year, as far as the eye can see, to get the government cash or the money to cover federal spending in excess of tax revenues. Additionally, consider that the Federal Reserve, for almost a decade, has been the largest buyer of all the national debt sold every month for years. Every year. Factor in that China, once the largest holder of U.S. government debt, is selling our government debt and buying nothing every month. So no do buying and selling. And over the past year or so, they have reduced their holdings of U.S. debt by close to $200 billion out of $1.1 trillion. Consider additionally that the oil countries, who were initially the ones about 50 years ago that strengthened the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency, they did this by agreeing with the Nixon administration to sell their oil in dollars on a global basis and then recycle the amount of their proceeds or a large amount into the U.S. government debt market while additionally buying U.S. stocks and corporate bonds and even U.S. companies like Saks Fifth Avenue, Tiffany's, and many hundreds of more companies across our industries. Not to paraphrase Elon Musk, but please let this sink in. These trends, plus a few more I'll highlight, will take time 
for their maximum impact. But let me ask a few important basic questions. First of all, a relatively strong and widely accepted dollar has added to all of our lifestyles. I think that's undeniable. What we've overspent every year, we just have issued new debt. Now, if we add all that up, every U.S. taxpayer owes over $250,000 as his or her share of the federal government debt. So far, through national debt auctions, almost every week, we as a country just keep borrowing more to keep the debt game going. First question, who is going to buy this debt with China and the Federal Reserve as sellers? Add to that, the oil countries, headed by Saudi Arabia, are helping to create another reserve currency, which is either focused on or a combination of the Chinese Yuan and Indian Rupee. This brings up a second question. No matter what the government and federal talking heads say, let's remember the basics of supply and demand. Our government has to keep refinancing debt and selling new debt and increasing amounts of debt as the old debts become due and payable. Add to that that our government will not or cannot cut their deficit spending year by year. A couple of years ago, the deficit spending was attributed to COVID. Now, it's not attributed to COVID at all. And we'll talk about some of the major items shortly. Given a growing supply of debt hitting the markets and the largest historical buyers of this debt now joining in as sellers, how is it possible to imagine interest rates moving in a direction other than up and up? Third question, how serious is the built-in government spending and why is this trend so non-reversible? Due to interest rates over the past year or so, our Federal Reserve is also, in addition to everything else I've mentioned, for the first time ever, losing almost $100 billion a year and suffering a likely trillion-dollar loss on the value of its treasury bond and note portfolios. These are notes and bonds that bought during the years when interest rates were close to zero, pretty much 10 years or more. Additionally, the Federal Reserve is trying to lower its investment in these notes and bonds by selling a half a trillion a year. The issues include, but they go far beyond the Ukraine war. While defense spending rose 18% over the past four years, non-defense spending shot up 43%. Spending on Social Security and retirement increased over a third from 2019 to 2023 as baby boomer generation folks began to exit the workforce. Retirement is becoming more and more of a luxury with the current cost of living, and many are opting to continue working rather than retire. We talked about the unemployment numbers before and how they are not totally representative of the situation, how they include a lot of part-time help, part-time workers instead of a healthily growing full-time workforce. Five or so years ago, 31% of wage earners had more than one job. Now the ratio is estimated to be well over 40%. Quite a change in just a few years. This is another data-based argument that our lower reported unemployment rate is heavily influenced by workers holding down increasing numbers of part-time jobs while the full-time workforce is not at all healthy or growing significantly. These days, it's likely not growing at all. There's more on recent government spending. Food stamp spending has increased by 102% from $63 billion only three and a half years ago to $127 billion this year. 
Welfare support has risen 50% in that same time period, from $32 billion to $48 billion. Unemployment costs have increased 32% over the past four years, despite the record low reporting of the unemployment rate. Additionally, the U.S. spent $53 billion on educational pandemic aid and $71 billion to help failing pension benefit guarantee plans. The Congressional Budget Office now foresees a federal budget of $1.4 trillion in 2023, and this number is expected to rise. If you go to a site which is named U.S. Debt Clock, I think you'll see that we are very close to exceeding that Congressional Budget Office deficit projection for this year already. I don't want your eyes to glaze over with all these numbers, so let's spend a few of our final minutes on how the new and growing threats outside the United States are going to be impacting the dollar as a reserve currency. By the way, these threats are very real to all of us. As a second global reserve currency is tied to a strong trading block of countries from where we get almost all of our key raw materials for electric car batteries, our imported oil, our fertilizers for all our crops, most everything made of plastic, our iPhones, and most sub-assemblies for computers, auto parts, aviation subsystems, and so much more that I couldn't begin to list in the time remaining. But we pretty much take all this for granted, and those taking-for-granted days are numbered. Let's start out with what is a reserve currency, because it's likely a lot of people haven't thought about this in a long time. A reserve currency is, among other things, a large amount of currency held by central banks and major financial institutions to use for international transactions. A reserve currency reduces exchange rate risks, since there is a much less of a need for a country to exchange its currency for the reserve currency to do trade. So a lot of dollars are held as dollars globally in the central banks, knowing that trillions of dollars of trade settlements are coming up. A reserve currency helps facilitate global transactions, including investments and international debt obligations. A large percentage of commodities globally are priced in the reserve currency, causing countries to hold this currency to pay for these goods. So there's a double whammy as the reserve currency changes. The obvious one is that the trade transactions take place in non-dollar terms, but the more subtle one is that of the trillions of dollars that are held globally by central banks, they don't need to hold so much money. They won't have the need to hold so much of our treasury note and treasury bonds. And we're seeing this start to play out already, as I mentioned a few minutes ago. It's worth a minute to review how the U.S. dollar became the world's reserve currency. This really happened as a result of World Wars One and Two. And speaking of World War II, the post-war emergence of the United States as the dominant economic power had enormous implications. And basically, during the World War I, World War II period, the U.S. dollar replaced the British pound, which had been a reserve currency of the world for about the prior 100 plus years. At one time, closer to the end of World War II, the U.S. gross national product, which is the measure of a total output of a country, represented 50% of the world's economic output. Now, we are way down, and we are way down in the neighborhood of 20%. The petrodollar history, which strongly supported the U.S. dollar for the past 50 plus years, 
stems from the Soviet Union's breakdown around 1991. And following the Soviet Union's breakdown, the U.S. became the only superpower throughout the materialized unipolar world. Subsequently, the world observed several destabilizations and crises to sustain the leadership of the petrocurrency structure. It's important to realize that the structure is strongly supported by agreements that were made in 1973 and thereabouts with the uh, Nixon administration in which the U.S. agreed to offer armed protection for Saudi Arabia. It also provided weaponry and other military supplies as an agreement involving the overall sale of U.S. oil and U.S. dollars. And finally, Saudi Arabia formally agreed to recycle their surplus dollars they were earning into the American economic system, importantly buying U.S. Treasury bills and Treasury bonds. This is the foundation that is getting strongly ruptured right now. The petrodollar emerged after the eradication of the gold standard, and the gold standard pretty much went away on a global scale. The U.S. dollar pretty much replaced it. There are a lot of important recent changes, very few of which I've seen in the media. I'll mention a checklist of a few that come to mind. China and Brazil have now reached a deal to trade in their own currencies, ditching the U.S. dollar entirely. The deal will enable China and Brazil and Brazil is the largest economy in Latin America, to conduct their very large trade, which amounts to $150 billion a year, and their financial transactions directly by exchanging Chinese yuan for Brazilian reals and vice versa, avoiding totally conversions to the U.S. dollar. In doing so, China extends its bilateral U.S. dollar exempting currency arrangements beyond countries such as Russia, Pakistan, and Saudi Arabia to include the Latin American exporting superpower Brazil. China is Brazil's largest trading partner with a record $150 billion in bilateral trade last year. The deal which follows a preliminary agreement in January was announced after a high-level China-Brazil meeting or a business forum in Beijing in recent weeks. We're still a long way from the yuan replacing the U.S. dollar, as we all sort of assume. But maybe it's not that easy, and maybe we should not be assuming that. Maybe it won't be so evolutionary. At the rate the U.S. policies and spending are destroying the world's faith and confidence in the U.S. and the dollar, what was once truly a superpower and is becoming increasingly a third world banana republic, maybe we won't have to wait for these changes as long as we assume. Following years of abusing its reserve currency status, the United States now faces a growing wave of global de dollarization, as many of the largest and most populous countries on the planet are banding together to launch a U.S. dollar alternative to be used in global trade. With respect to a report from a local news outlet, State Duma Deputy Chairman Babarakov is actively encouraging the creation of a new common currency between Russia, India, and the other BRICS nations as another formal pushback against the U.S., BRICS, which is an acronym for five of the world's leading emerging economies, which I think you know, but Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, has been receiving a lot of extra airtime in the private meeting environments. And this has been moved along by aggressive rate increases by the Federal Reserve, which has put pressure on these currencies. is an additional problem for them. Babakov highlighted the fact that Russia and India would benefit from the creation of a common currency that could be used for payments, calling it the most viable route to take. New Delhi, 
in Moscow are instituting a new economic association with a new shared currency. This may be the digital ruble or the Indian rupee or even a digital Indian rupee. Should also point out that India has been a primary beneficiary of the Western positions of not buying Russian crude oil, at least not above $60 a barrel. The shipping of merchandise, importantly oil, from Russia to India and the dependence of India on Russian crude oil after the Western embargo has been substantial. The imports of Russian crude into India are of the magnitude of 10 to 20 times what they were before. The Russian speaker also mentioned that China would play a crucial role in the development of a common currency, as China would add $1.4 billion, a billion people, to the system. And India, I think, is 1.1 billion people. So this is going to be a larger trading block in the world in terms of number of people than the Western countries by some large margin. New Delhi, Beijing, and Moscow are key, and they're moving aggressively to initiate a multipolar world. And this world is endorsed by a majority of the governments. There are 134 non-island countries in the world. The majority of those countries are endorsing a move away from the dollar or alignment with the efforts that I just covered. And the composition of this new group should be based on inducting new monetary ties established on a strategy that will not be defending the U.S. dollar or even the euro, but will rather form a new currency competent of benefiting shared objectives of the majority of these countries. As I said before, this is a big deal. We have not seen this in the hundred years that the U.S. has been a reserve currency. India has truly benefited in many ways from the West's distraction from the Ukraine war. The Reserve Bank of India is allowing 18 countries to open their Vostro accounts and has been attracting a lot of new deals in trade and manufacturing. New Delhi and Moscow have strengthened their relationship as India is not imposing sanctions. The Indian Commerce Ministry said in its five-year plan is to encourage the use of the rupee in international trade while planning to expand exports $2 trillion by 2030. Trading in rupees will also allow India to save on conversion spreads and limit the country's dependence on the what is now a pretty volatile dollar. So the BRICS have treaties in place, and these treaties remain strong, and oil giants like Saudi Arabia and Iran are joining these treaties and partnerships. This is another new factor of significance. The Saudis stated at the beginning of this year that they were open to settling trade in currencies other than the U.S. dollar. And one of their senior people at Davos quoted, there are no issues with discussing how we settle our trade arrangements, whether it's in U.S. dollar, euro, or Saudi real terms. So this is all coming together fairly quickly in kind of a big way. Here we are yet again amid another war, not World War II, thank goodness, another war and a high budget deficit and debt to gross national product ratios that are more like a banana republic than a major industrial nation with debt continuing to go up, the need to finance our debt continuing to go up. But the Saudis no longer need protection from America and siding with Western interests would actually be a detriment to their international deals with countries in the BRIC alliance and some in the OPEC plus group. Of course, a backdrop to all of this is China returning to its pre-COVID industrial power and becoming, once again, a large vacuum cleaner, vacuuming up pretty much all the oil that it can get from the oil exporting countries. 
So China is coming back to normalization and is going to be a huge client of the OPEC countries. Despite the green agenda, particularly in the West, the world cannot operate without oil. And we've covered this in a prior podcast. With all the trillions spent going green, the world is still requiring about 80% of its energy to be furnished by oil and natural gas versus over 20 years ago, I think it was only 81%. So we're barely making a dent in terms of cutting back global oil consumption in the green effort. So now the major oil exporters are aligning and cutting out the U.S. as their middleman in global trade. Recently, the OPEC countries have announced they're cutting back on oil production to strengthen global oil prices. We are in for a lot of news, and I'm bringing this podcast to your attention not to create needless worry, but I'm bringing this to your attention because we need to be thinking more and more about changes in the role of the dollar over the next six months, over the next year, over the next five years. And these changes may happen faster than many many people may think. But wanting to keep you aware and bring up key new trends that are generally not covered by the TV or the mass publishing media. Take care. Next podcast, I have a surprise for you. I have a special guest and we are going to be talking about how branding affects imports and exports and how actually the subject of branding is an area that requires a little bit more thought, a little bit more sensitivity, because changes in the branding area actually will be impacting changes in goods and services movements. If I've piqued your curiosity, that's wonderful. In the meantime, take care, be careful, cut down the risk in your investments, and be prepared for a little bit of a change in pace in the next podcast. Bye for now. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.